A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Don't let anyone tell you that Vancouver is boring. There is a world of intrigue, of millionaire criminals, refugees, pop stars, gamblers, and murderers. It's the unfolding drama of Vancouver's ballooning community of rich expat Chinese. An immigrant story unlike any Canada has ever seen, maybe unlike anything the world has seen. Ian Young documents these stories on his blog, Hongcouver, which is published by the South China Morning Post, the English-language Hong Kong-based newspaper. This blog is fascinating. Ian tells Vancouver stories that have changed the way I think about Vancouver. Here's a sample headline. Former duck farmer from China revealed as buyer of $40 million Vancouver mansion. I was lucky enough to meet up with Ian Young in Vancouver on a recent trip. Ian keeps Hong Kong time, so we met up at midnight. Huge thanks, by the way, to Canada Land listener Curtis Duggan for opening up his downtown Vancouver office to us so late at night. And my conversation with journalist and Hongcouver blogger Ian Young is coming right up. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Michael McDaniel, Sig Gerber, Thomas Woodhall, Ken Donnelly, Terrence, Isaac Waller, Alexandra Naylor, Jonathan Fiddler, Natalie Clancy, and Matthew Prime. Matthew, why did you decide to be awesome? Because you understand that trust is an ongoing process. Not only do you proactively disclose your biases and conflicts, whether real or perceived, you have the guts to publish full-length criticisms of your show, something our mainstream media wouldn't consider even when caught at the cookie jar. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. 
Cam H., we hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks, the solution for cloud accounting. FreshBooks makes it very simple. And it's wonderful for journalists, freelancers, small businesses, entrepreneurs, people like Giovanna Paz. Giovanna, tell me about your business. Oh, I was just entering all my expenses. Part-time, I work uh, in an office and part-time, I work in my small business in handmade jewelry. I make jewelry by crocheting wire. And what do you like best about FreshBooks? Oh, great, because it's very easy to use and help me to be organized and keep track of my invoices and expenses. Simple. Guys, you can use FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Go there now, freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. And if you do become a regular paying customer of FreshBooks, tell them who sent you. You will be supporting this program. Thank you to FreshBooks. So what is Honkouver? Honkouver. Honkouver is a bit of a state of mind. It used to be a pejorative, but it's not, not a pejorative. I don't see it as a pejorative anymore. It used to be something that people would sling around to refer to the um, Hong Kongization of Vancouver. Um, but, you know, that's, that's 20, 30 years ago, whatever. And I think that um, most people now who are Hongkouverites, that is people from Hong Kong or China um, who live in Vancouver or have lived in Vancouver, sort of see it affectionately. That's, it, it's, it is an identity, I think. Outside right now, it's uh, midnight downtown. Mm. Doesn't seem much like Hong Kong out there. No, exactly. I it's think dead. that's there's, exactly there's no action on exactly. This Hong Kong. It, it, yeah, downtown. Hong Kong only wakes up at ten o'clock at night, and it keeps going until well till ten o'clock the next night. Um, I think that people, uh, a lot of people, when they come come to Vancouver, find it a very different place, and it is a little bit of a culture shock. And for that reason, I think a lot of people do end up and go back to Hong Kong. It's funny, huh? Like the, um, you can't imagine a more of a culture clash of the boisterousness of new wealth in, in China and, and the laid-back 
oh my West gosh Coast Vancouver thing you know and that's that's the thing um, I think that sometimes when you see uh, what goes on you go to you go to Granville Street for instance you go to those luxury car dealerships you know Vancouver's got the highest rate of sports car ownership supercar ownership rather uh, you know in North America ridiculous Vancouver has the some of the lowest incomes in North America it's insane median income here is something like 68,000 uh-huh. the flip side though is it, it's the richest city in Canada because of the household real estate wealth it's the most indebted city in Canada by a great margin and is also one of the lowest paid cities in Canada uh-huh. you know it's a city in flux and people don't really people people feel good about themselves because their house is worth whatever people feel good, good about themselves when their real estate goes up but at the same time there are people who um, you know, are really really struggling in this city it lacks a robust public conversation in, in the way that you expect of a big city it's a problem when you've got a, a media monopoly I think um, and it does become a little bit cosy especially when you know you've it's basically a one industry town it's become a real estate town and so you're relying on the same people um to fund the media as who are appearing in the media. Can you expect the same level of scrutiny? I would hope that that they would get it, but ultimately I know that it's very difficult. Yeah. So tell me about, I mean, I, I, of course, I'm aware of all this migration from Hong Kong to Vancouver. I didn't know about a Canadian community in Hong Kong. Oh, there's a huge Canadian community in Hong Kong. And it's actually emblematic of the way that migration has really changed in the last 20, 30 years, particularly to Canada. Um, because it's gone from being a situation where people from poorer places would move somewhere to economically better themselves. In the case of the Hong Kong and Chinese migration that we're seeing now, we're seeing very large numbers of middle class, uh, very wealthy people who are coming to Canada for different reasons, Um, whether it's to uh, put their kids in good schools, whether it's to retire, um, you know, whether it's uh, some, some come to migrate in the traditional sense. But often it's uh, for a passport, it's for economic uh, advantage, it's for convenience, it's for all sorts of things. And a lot of those uh, migrants do end up and go back. We're talking about, like, there is an incredible amount of new wealth. Oh, yes, huge numbers. Coming out of Hong Kong and mainland China. Huge amounts. I think the the, the Hong Kong wealth um, really dried up in the mid-90s, but that was simply because uh, Hong Kong ran out of millionaires. The, The number of Hong Kongers in Vancouver has been shrinking very rapidly uh, because a lot of them have been going back to Hong Kong. There was a very popular program called the Immigrant Investor Program that was run by the federal government. Uh, now, that was shut down last year. It should just about be petering out now with the last, um, last people coming through. But there's also a program called the Quebec Immigrant Investor Program. And in spite of the name, most of them end up in Vancouver. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That sounds like a story there. Well, it's a bit of a scam, actually. What, uh, the story is that Quebec is allowed to run its own immigration program. Under this scheme, uh, wealthy immigrants l- basically hand over cash to the Quebec government. The Quebec government approves them. The federal government then issues the visas. And the immigrants are supposed to settle in Quebec. But they don't. Well, a great many of them don't. Because there's no legal requirement for them to do so. Once they arrive in, in Canada and activate their passport... Um, their residency, rather. You can't prevent someone from moving province to no, province. No, there's no... Absolutely. No Canadian residency is Canadian residency. Sure. No such thing as Quebec residency. Absolutely. And that's not just with uh, Chinese people. That's something that's true. They were bringing in all sorts of people from French-speaking countries who would come in, and there just wasn't a lot of economic activity in Quebec. Yes. Well, I mean, we look at the Quebec program. Uh, 90% of Quebec immigrant investors end up living elsewhere in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's a remarkable number. The majority 
I think something like 68% end up living in um, in BC. And by BC, I mean Vancouver. Wealth migrants do not live anywhere else other than Vancouver in BC. So what's the scam? I mean, I, I see how they are kind of subverting a program that's meant to kind of bring wealthy people, uh, well, you know, the, it, the kind of desirable immigration into Quebec and they don't end up in Quebec. Does Quebec benefit in any way? Absolutely. It's a scam on the part of the Quebec government because they are taking the money that is supposedly used for settlement services, for business improvement, all those sorts of things, but they're not settling the immigrants. And so the burden of immigrant settlement and those sort of programs falls on BC. And, of course, there's also been um, knock-on effects in terms of real estate prices and things like that. So the impact, good or bad, has been falling on BC. The actual cash that's handed over by these immigrants, because they're handing over $800,000 in the form of a five-year loan to the Uh Quebec government, uh, and that cash um, uh, goes to Quebec, doesn't come to BC. This really subverts, I think, a lot of people's idea of immigration. Absolutely. My grandparents uh, and my great-grandparents on the other side, they came here penniless, fleeing really horrible persecution, and they... You know, there's the story that we tell ourselves that's true in so many cases of people who came here with nothing and worked really, really hard. As Rob Ford would put it, you know, the Asians working like dogs. (laughs) As racist as it is, this is the common conception of Canada that that, that this is a country built on. And we we, we congratulate ourselves for this. But that's not the kind of immigration that you're Absolutely. You're right. This This view is a view that still works. But there is a sector of wealth migration where it is very, very far off the mark. Uh, Millionaire migration in particular, it's a completely different kettle of fish. Uh, Very, very few millionaire migrants go on to earn livings here in Canada. Uh Uh-huh. Very, very few. In fact, um, millionaire migrants, and we're talking here with people with a baseline wealth of $1.6 million, earn less than refugees. Yeah, I read you writing that, and it it was just shocking to me. It's a mind-boggling sort of concept. I would imagine that the hope in bringing millionaires in, as opposed to struggling, desperate people, is that they're going to bring that wealth with them, and that that's going to affect the tax base, and and, you know we're we're going to benefit from that in so many ways. And and what you documented is that, in fact, they are reporting less income than the servants they bring with them. Absolutely. Well, the wealth is coming. But certainly the, um, the economic development, the jobs, the businesses, um, uh, even the income tax that they should be bringing with them isn't. And it's not just the first generation, it's the second generation as well. Their children are declaring incomes that are far below the Canadian average. And we're talking here about the children of multimillionaires. So tell me a story of a typical or family that why did they come here? Are they just trying, is it an investment opportunity? What's the idea? If we look at the current um, uh, crop of millionaire migrants, mainland Chinese, why does a mainland Chinese millionaire want to migrate to Canada? Uh, Generally, it's for security uh, because there is a mindset in China that it could all go pear-shaped at any moment because you're in a country that hasn't got uh, that firm, long-established rule of law and democracy that can protect wealth, uh, that can protect opportunity. Uh, so there is always the risk that it will all go horribly wrong one day. And that might just be, you know, that, that's just a psychological point of view. And so immigration offers, a, particularly immigration to Canada, offers a chance um, at a safety net. It offers a passport. It offers um, a, a just-in-case And uh, frequently that's what immigration is. It's a just-in-case. And so that once uh, a passport is secured, a great deal of of millionaire migrants, or at least the breadwinners in millionaire migrant households, go back to China and continue on their merry way doing business. 
Um, if you're an economically successful millionaire in China who has got the contacts, has got the skills, has got the business in China, why would you wrap that up to come and try and duplicate that success in a country where you don't speak the language, where you don't have the contacts? Uh, and, and there is no... Um, there's no imperative for them to do so. There's no legal requirement for them to do so. Um, you know, obviously, I think there is a, a great deal of tax avoidance which is going on. Uh-huh. But in general, it's not incumbent upon them to wrap up their lives in China. Um, if their kids have passports, they can simply um, uh, reject residency after a while, go back to China, and once your children or wife has a passport, then you can come in under a different program. You can come in under family reunion, for instance. So basically we're looking at a safety net system. We're not looking at people trying to better their lives. We're looking at people trying to um, secure what they have already attained. This is a pretty stark view you take of it. I mean, what, mm. what you document is essentially mass exploitation. Mm. To the detriment, because one of the main focuses of your journalism is, is what it's doing to the real estate market. And, you know, we obsess about real estate in Toronto in a certain way, but, but you write about real estate as a human rights issue. Yeah. Well, I think that the real estate issue here in Vancouver, people tend to t- treat real estate here in Vancouver as, as a lifestyle story. Well, I don't think it's a lifestyle story. Well, it is a lifestyle story for some, for the lucky some. But for others, it's a really important issue of social justice. Uh, people are being forced out of this city um, because of this catastrophic increase in housing unaffordability. You know, people's lives have been ruined. And the flip side of this, of course, is that some people have been greatly, vastly enriched through no great credit of their own. And the people who are being hurt, that's through no great fault of their own. It's generally, it's just because of a mistake of birth. It's just the fact that they're too young to have, you know, been homeowners at a certain time. So you've got this great divide that's developing in Vancouver between, you know, the baby boomers and the the people who who are aged... Um, you know, in their early 40s and younger, they're really uh, out in the cold and they're struggling a little bit. And this should be kept separate from the other equally great issue of homelessness. So we're talking about a different thing. It's a challenging story from a number of respects. It's challenging, uh, firstly, to the baby boomers and older who are being challenged on this issue. Why do you now sit on $2 million of equity when you really... uh, Quite frankly, what did you do to deserve that? Whereas here am I, I can't afford to buy a home in Vancouver. What have I done to deserve that? I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. Why can't I buy in Vancouver? Uh-huh. You wrote that there's something grotesquely wrong. It is grotesquely with wrong. The real estate it market. is grotesquely wrong. I think that Vancouver's real estate market has frankly become a world class freak show. There are a couple of very, very self serving arguments that are employed generally by property owners and generally by baby boomers, you know, to to, to, to make themselves feel better about this situation. One is that, um, oh, it's always been like this. Vancouver's always been unaffordable. And the other is, oh, it's, maybe it is worse here now than it used to be, but it's happening everywhere in the world. Both of those arguments are absolute rubbish. Why? Well, in terms of housing affordability, we're now at the point where uh, a price-to-income ratio, when I'm talking about price of all housing, condos, townhouses, you know, detached houses to income ratio is 10.6. The only city in the world where that is exceeded is in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Now, people say, okay, well, you know, that might be bad, but surely it's bad elsewhere. Well, it must be bad in New York, 6.1. You know, I mean, there's, you, 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 you look at the transformation. It's worse here than in New oh. York. Oh, the affordability here is almost twice as bad. Uh-huh. And that's that, even though prices are bad in New York, incomes have kept up. 
10 years ago in Vancouver, the price-to-income ratio was 5.3. It's increased by a factor of 100%. And as for the argument that it's happening in other cities around the world, let's go through them. Over that 10 years, Sydney in Australia, another one that's often cited, that's gone up 11%. San Francisco went up 16%. London went down 2%. New York went down 14%. And here we are in Vancouver, up 100%. You know, the, the way you write about this stuff and the drama that you lend to it and you know just how outspoken you are... There's an urgency to your reporting on this that you don't really read in mm. a lot of Canadian media. And in fact, reading Vancouver, you approach policy issues the same as you do crime stories, where it's I feel like I'm almost reading some alternate universe take on what's happening in Canada. Like I'm reading from a Dashiell Hammett novel. You got stories of millionaires dismembering corpses and in huge mansions where, you know, Hong Kong pop stars used to live, and you've got Stories of, of uh, guys with double identities whose fathers were enemies of Beijing on the run and being exposed. It grabs me in that kind of tabloid way, but you're also saying things that seem really, really urgent in, in terms of these policy matters. I think the perspective is different for a start. I think that if you looked at Chinese media and Chinese language media that, that covers Vancouver, you'd see a slightly different perspective. Um, I think that uh, Chinese media tends to, um, tends to cover things in a different way. And I would add that the South China Morning Post is very, very far from a tabloid newspaper. If there is a grey lady of Asian journalism... It's the South China Morning Post. Please we, take no offence. No, no, I, I, no. I meant that in the most laudatory way possible. No, I, I take it as a compliment. I used to work on tabloids, so I don't, I don't see it as a pejorative. Um, I'm, I'm saying your stuff's interesting. I mean, you're, you're covering I, I the same so. stuff, but I'd rather read your take on it. than I should hope so. The fact that this is happening in my country, you know, is is something that like it's it's this it's the voice and the standards, uh, the tone of another country's press. And, and you are, you, you've been here five years? I've been here five years, but I'm, I've been working basically on the Honkhoover blog for a bit over two years. So you're not a Canadian and your audience is not Canadian. And half and half now, actually. We, we, we started out as Hong Kong, but we're getting a pretty strong audience now in Vancouver. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So where do you see yourself? And we, you were talking with me a little bit as we were coming in here about um, the coziness of the media scene here in Vancouver. Do you are, are you almost like a spy on behalf of readers elsewhere? I mean, I'm de- I definitely feel like an outlier at uh-huh. times. Um, I think that. Uh, and this is no disrespect to the journalists, the very hardworking journalists who work under the normal situation of the journalists all around the world where they've got editors and they've got advertising managers and they've got the pressures of uh, local business people who are phoning up editors and what have you. I don't have that. Um, you know, the, y- your local businessman who gets annoyed at me is very unlikely to be phoning up my editor. You know, I, I document how a lot of the editors... Uh, know the people who the reporters are reporting sure. on, and those those t- they, they go to the same places and they talk with each other. That's not happening with you. You're you're sort of like you are the franchise office. Of, sure, of it is a little morning. bit different. And I especially uh, I especially get back to real estate reporting. For a lot of real estate reporters in this town, um, y- you end up, of course, you forge relationships with real estate agents, with developers, and what have you. And so to challenge the big picture status quo, the really big picture status quo of what's going on in Vancouver. And as I said, I think it's a freak show. It's quite difficult to do that and then to face these people, you know, downstairs in the bar on Friday afternoon. You've got a a high level of independence, I suppose. I do. but And I would say that um, um, a lot of journalists here in Vancouver have been extremely supportive of what I do. You've got a lot of independence from the larger Canadian scene, but the paper you write for has been criticised for lacking independence from Beijing. And there's 
case after case of fired cartoonists and editorialists, anyone who seems to go against the PRC, yep. uh, is shown their, their their walking papers. It's definitely a part of the history of the South China Morning Post, good, bad and ugly. Um, I think all newspapers do tend to have that um, through their history. The South China Morning Post, by the virtue of its position as this window on China, it's gone through different owners. It's gone through Murdoch. It's gone through you know other owners. It's with um, um, the Malaysian billionaire, Mr Kwok, now. Um, it's always going to be under great scrutiny. And because of the transformation in Hong Kong, um, the South China Morning Post is a microcosm of that. And, uh, you know, Hong Kong is a place that is riven and it's a place that's um, uh, got this societal upheaval that's happening. And that, sure, that happens in the newsroom. And you're in sort of a strange position because you're reporting benefits from a much greater wealth of knowledge about the politics of Beijing and what's happening. I mean, I think a lot of people who are covering... Vancouver don't know how much of it has to do with what's happening in China. And, and you are able to bring in that that perspective. What do they think of Vancouver? Well, Vancouver has always been um, sort of, uh, you know, this, this sort of Shangri-La type place, part, partly because from the early 80s, you, we saw um, a whole bunch of tycoons, celebrities, pop stars coming out here ahead of the handover. There becomes this whole nexus of um, of celebrity and money and uh, and wealth and and crime that interconnects Vancouver and Hong Kong in a way that belies the geographical distance. You know, in a lot of ways, Vancouver is you know an outlying suburb of Hong Kong and vice versa. Uh huh. But wealthy Chinese sort of who are sure. for whatever reason kind of on the run. It's definitely a place where um, where someone who has dirty money might want to come. Uh huh. You know, I realize we haven't even touched on this. People listening to this, they hear your name, Ian Young, and they, and they hear your Australian accent. Sure. And you're speaking about... I am Chinese. I should add that. I am ethnically Chinese, and right. I am a Hong Kong permanent resident. And, and <laughs> the, the, the uh, strange maze of Canadian manners around these things. Nobody wants to have a whiff of xenophobia. And when mm. it comes to immigration, I, I think that people don't want to say anything Absolutely. negative about immigration. Absolutely. You wrote a piece, Why Chineseness Can Matter When Reporting on Vancouver. So so why when does Chineseness matter well, and why? Ethnicity certainly does matter sometimes it matters in terms of perception it matters sometimes it matters because it doesn't matter if you know what I mean what I'm saying is uh, that when we look at issues of immigration I look particularly at wealth migration it just so happens that wealth migration is absolutely dominated by wealthy Chinese at the moment but that doesn't necessarily define it Um, it just so happens that um, 80% of millionaire migrants to Vancouver are Chinese. But the behaviour of these immigrants is probably better defined by the fact that they are millionaires than the fact that they happen to be Chinese millionaires. And for that reason, it's important to understand when Chineseness matters, when it doesn't matter, and when when, when we shouldn't be squeamish about mentioning it. When I talk about, for instance, the Immigrant Investor Program, um, a lot of the focus, of course, for my readers is because... It's um, a Chinese has been a Chinese dominated scheme, um, but that isn't what defines the scheme. The, what defined the scheme ultimately was that this was a scheme in which millionaires handed over hundreds of thousands of dollars to secure residency and passports. Canada was in the business of selling passports. Did you know that? A lot of Canadians didn't, uh-huh. and it's been going on for twenty eight years. And um, you know the way that China has transformed in the last, you know. 10, 20, 30 years. That's what's feeding this scheme. That's what got out of control. We were at one stage in, I think, in 2010 when there were 40,000 applications to this one scheme alone. That's more than, than applied to all other wealth migration schemes around the world. 
You know, Vancouver, for instance, receives more wealth migration than any other city in the world. It's received more than the entire United States. You know, I mean, the, the scale of wealth migration to Vancouver is quite mind-boggling. Um, and there is an element of denialism here in Vancouver about it because people are a little bit squeamish, I think, about about the fact that most of those millionaires have been ethnically Chinese. Mm-hmm. One particularly pernicious thing that I notice is that uh, uh, there is this squeamishness about saying Chinese when you meet Chinese, and often you'll say Asian. You're looking at a racial designator by describing someone as Asian because you can't be bothered to define them as they actually are, which is Chinese, to say that, okay, well, Vancouver real estate is dominated by Asian buyers. That means nothing. But, however, if you said that Vancouver's detached housing market is dominated by wealthy Chinese buyers, that means something. And you can start going back and you can start looking where the patterns are and you can start looking at where the money's coming from. But to use generalisations like Asian... Asian doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't. There's no, you know, homogeneity there. There's no Asian... There is no Asian community per se in Vancouver, I'd say. It's very hard to actually pin down a Chinese community. There are lots of Chinese communities here in Vancouver. Yeah. You know? But when we start using such broad generalisations, oh, you know, the market's dominated by Asians, it means nothing. And then when you get into social issues, you wrote about one story where there was a... What was it? A parents group and Mm. the, the, the press said sort of, again, in code, well, they're from Richmond. Yes, exactly right. Well, what it was was there was this uh, uproar about um, a um, uh, LGBT policy that was being adopted by the local school board. Um, And there was a protest group that sprang up, ethnically Chinese, uh, culturally identified themselves as Chinese. And instead of simply identifying that fact, because these are important cultural identifiers, and it's certainly the way that a lot of those people would culturally identify themselves, uh, they were identified as being from Richmond. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, as if that's what that means. Why not simply call it what it is? These were people who were ethnically Chinese, who were from, you know, Chinese Christian churches, who were upset because... Um, you know, they, they didn't like this particular policy. And we should say to people, Richmond being, uh, I guess, a neighbouring city to Vancouver, a suburb of Vancouver? Uh, I'd say a satellite city. It's probably, uh, and, and it is 50%, uh, 50, 50% ethnically Chinese. There are plenty of members of the Chinese community who are not conservative Christians, you know. But to simply say, oh, they're from Richmond, that implies, oh, those people from Richmond, i.e. people who are Chinese, they're all alike. To designate... Uh, people as being from Richmond, as if that tells you something. T- what's that meant to tell you, that these protesters who are opposed to gay um, gay reform are from Richmond? Is it meant to imply that all Chinese are opposed to gay reform? It certainly sounded like it to me. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are plenty of very socially aware, gay-friendly Chinese yeah. Christian churches. And and so to simply dismiss the whole this whole phenomenon as, oh, they're from Richmond, that ex- as if that ex- is meant to explain it, it's just a wink, wink, and a nudge, nudge, as you put it. Sometimes, of course, it is relevant, you know, um, and it doesn't hurt to ask. And it, it, I think that most Canadians, I would hope, are good and kind and decent enough to know racism when they see it, and also good and kind and decent enough to know faux racism when they see it. You know, I think that the real estate issue has been particularly coloured by that. We've seen a lot of real estate developer types, generally uh, rich white guys, um, saying, oh, well, you can't talk about foreign money because that's racist. Right, right. By the way, you're messing up my business. Exactly. Well, it's a very self-serving argument. And aside from anything else, the, um, you know, great numbers of the Chinese community have been um, are damaged and um, are struggling under this, you know, this yoke of unaffordability. 
Um, it just so happens, of course, that a lot of the very rich buyers are, are also ethnically Chinese. Do you fear that in being blunt about this stuff, you may cross the line as well? I mean, you wrote, I don't think I have yet crossed any racist lines with my reporting, but one day, inadvertently, I probably will. Sure. I think that um, when you're uh, writing about these issues on a daily basis, uh, inevitably, uh, I think it's uh, inevitably, I think I probably one day will um, will write something that I didn't mean to write. It will come out in a way that I didn't mean to come out, and maybe I'll offend someone. And when that happens, I'll apologise. It's just fascinating. You know, maybe you're, you've got a growing Canadian audience, but the the paper in its intent is it's an English language paper Absolutely. for people in Hong Kong. Yes, and you are here to tell the story of Canada to them, yes. but you're also telling us the story of Canada in a way that I haven't read it before. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you you're seeing it that way because I think that we do have I do have a growing. Um, Vancouver readership uh, who are interested in this perspective who are interested in a different perspective on their own city. I think that what I bring and what the South China Morning Post brings is that we can stand back and we can actually see, sometimes you have to stand back to see what's going on Um, you know, I I feel sometimes that Vancouver is um, you know, at the centre of uh, this wave of Chinese wealth and these, these global forces, but it's unaware, you know, it, because you don't know when it's happening. For instance, I feel like Vancouver is sometimes like this, you know, a leaf floating down this raging river and it feels calm on, on the leaf, but when you stand back, that's when you actually see what's going on. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I am on Twitter at jesse brown, and the show's website is canadalandshow.com. The crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday, and the next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.